Helen's Babies, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Helen's Babies, with some account of their ways, innocent, crafty, angelic, impish, witching, and impulsive, also a partial record of their actions during ten days of their existence. By John Haberton. Part 1. The first cause, so far as it can be determined, of the existence of this book may be found in the following letter, written by my only married sister, and received by me, Harry Burton, salesman of white goods, bachelor, aged twenty-eight, and received just as I was trying to decide where I should spend a fortnight's vacation. Hillcrest, June 15, 1875. Dear Harry, Remembering that you are always complaining that you never have a chance to read, and knowing that you won't get it this summer if you spend your vacation among people of your own set, I write to ask you to come up here. I admit that I am not wholly disinterested in inviting you. The truth is, Tom and I are invited to spend a fortnight with my old schoolmate, Alice Wayne, who, you know, is the dearest girl in the world, though you didn't obey me and marry her before Frank Wayne appeared. Well, we're dying to go, for Alice and Frank live in splendid style, but as they haven't included our children in their invitation, and have no children of their own, we must leave Budge and Toddy at home. I've no doubt they'll be perfectly safe, for my girl is a jewel and devoted to the children, but I would feel a great deal easier if there was a man in the house. Besides, there's the silver, and burglars are less likely to break into a house where there's a savage-looking man. Never mind about thanking me for the compliment. If you will only come up, my mind will be completely at rest. The children won't give you the slightest trouble. They're the best children in the world. Everybody says so. Tom has plenty of cigars, I know, for the money I should have had for a new suit went to pay his cigar man. He has some new claret, too, that he goes into ecstasies over, though I can't tell it from the vilest black ink, except by the colour. Our horses are in splendid condition, and so is the garden. You see, I don't forget your old passion for flowers. And, last and best, there never were so many handsome girls at Hillcrest as there are among the summer boarders already here. The girls you already are acquainted with here will see that you meet all the newer acquisitions. Reply by telegraph right away. Of course you'll say yes. In great haste, your loving, Sister Helen. P.S. You shall have our own chamber. It catches every breeze and commands the finest views. The children's room communicates with it, so if anything should happen to the darlings at night, you'd be sure to hear them. "'Just the thing!' I ejaculated. Five minutes later I had telegraphed Helen my acceptance of her invitation, and had mentally selected books enough to busy me during a dozen vacations. Without sharing Helen's belief that her boys were the best ones in the world, I knew them well enough to feel assured that they would not give me any annoyance. There were two of them, since baby Phil died last fall. Budge, the elder, was five years of age, and had generally, during my flying visits to Helen, worn a shy, serious, meditative, noble face, with great, pure, penetrating eyes, that made me almost fear their stare. Tom declared he was a born philanthropist, or prophet, 
and Helen made so free with Miss Mulock's lines as to sing, "'Ah, the day that thou goest a-wooing, budgie, my boy!' Toddy had seen but three summers, and was a happy little know-nothing, with a head full of tangled yellow hair, and a very pretty fancy for finding out sunbeams and dancing in them. I had long envied Tom his horses, his garden, his house, and his location, and the idea of controlling them for a fortnight was particularly delightful. Tom's taste in cigars and claret I had always respected, while the lady inhabitants of Hillcrest were, according to my memory, much like those of every other suburban village, the fairest of their sex. Three days later I made the hour-and-a-half trip between New York and Hillcrest, and hired a hackman to drive me over to Tom's. Half a mile from my brother-in-law's residence, our horses shied violently, and the driver, after talking freely to them, turned to me and remarked, "'That was one of the imps.' "'What was?' I asked. "'That little cuss that scared the horses. There he is now holding up that piece of brushwood. "'Twould be just like his cheek now to ask me to let him ride. Here he comes running. Wonder where t'other is. They most generally travel together.' We call em the imps about these parts, because they're so uncommon likely at mischief, always skeerin' hosses or chasin' cows or frightenin' chickens. Nice enough father and mother, too. Queer how young ones do turn out. As he spoke, the offending youth came panting beside our carriage, and in a very dirty sailor suit, and under a broad-brimmed straw hat, with one stocking about his ankle and two shoes, averaging about two buttons each, I recognized my nephew, Budge. About the same time there emerged from the bushes by the roadside a smaller boy, in a green gingham dress, a ruffle which might once have been white, dirty stockings, blue slippers worn through at the toes, and an old-fashioned straw turban. Thrusting into the dust of the road a branch from a bush, and shouting, "'Here's my grass-cutter!' he ran toward us, enveloped in a pillar of cloud, which might have served the purpose of Israel in Egypt. When he paused, and the dust had somewhat subsided, I beheld the unmistakable lineaments of the child Toddy. "'They're my nephews!' I gasped. "'What?' exclaimed the driver. "'By gracious! I forgot you were going to Colonel Lawrence's. I didn't tell anything but the truth about em, though. They're smart enough, and good enough, as boys go.' "'but they'll never die of the complaint that children has in Sunday-school books.' "'Budge,' said I, with all the sternness I could command, "'do you know me?' The searching eyes of the embryo prophet and philanthropist scanned me for a moment. Then their owner replied, "'Yes, your Uncle Harry. Did you bring us anything?' "'Bring us anything?' echoed Toddy. "'I wish I could have brought you some big whippings,' said I, with great severity of manner, "'for behaving so badly. Get into this carriage.' "'Come on, Todd!' shouted Budge, although Toddy's farther ear was not a yard from Budge's mouth. "'Uncle Harry's going to take us riding!' "'Going to take us riding!' echoed Toddy, with the air of one in a reverie. Both the echo and the reverie, I soon learned, were characteristics of Toddy.' As they clambered into the carriage, I noticed that each one carried a very dirty towel, knotted in the centre into what is known as a slip-noose knot, drawn very tight. 
after some moments of disgusted contemplation of these rags, without being in the least able to comprehend their purpose, I asked Budge what those towels were for. "'They're not towels, they're dollies,' promptly answered my nephew. "'Goodness!' I exclaimed. "'I should think your mother could buy you respectable dolls, "'and not let you appear in public with those loathsome rags.' "'We don't like buy dollies,' explained Budge. "'These dollies is lovely. Mine's name is Mary, and Toddy's is Marfa.' "'Marfa?' I queried. "'Yes, don't you know about—' "'Marfa and Mary's just gone along to ring them charmin' bells. "'That them jubilee sings about?' "'Oh, Martha, you mean?' "'Yes, Marfa, that's what I say. "'Toddy's dolly's got brown eyes, and my dolly's got blue eyes.' "'I want as she yours watch,' remarked Toddy, "'snatching at my chain and rolling into my lap. "'Oh, ye, so do I,' shouted Budge, "'hastening to occupy one knee, "'and, in transitu, wiping his shoes on my trousers "'and the skirts of my coat.' Each imp put an arm about me to steady himself, as I produced my three-hundred-dollar timekeeper, and showed them the dial. "'I want to see the wheels go round,' said Budge. "'Want to see wheels go wound?' echoed Toddy. "'No, I can't open my watch where there's so much dust,' I said. "'What for?' inquired Budge. "'Want to see the wheels go wound,' repeated Toddy. "'The dust gets inside the watch and spoils it,' I explained. "'Want to see the wheels go wound,' said Toddy once more. "'I tell you I can't, Toddy,' said I, with considerable asperity. "'Dust spoils watches.' The innocent grey eyes looked up wonderingly. The dirty but pretty lips parted slightly, and Toddy murmured, "'Want to see the wheels go wound.' I abruptly closed my watch and put it into my pocket. Instantly Toddy's lower lip commenced to turn outward, and continued to do so until I seriously feared the bony portion of his chin would be exposed to view. Then his lower jaw dropped, and he cried, "'I want to see the wheels go wound!' "'Charles!' "'Charles is his baptismal name.' "'Charles!' I exclaimed with some anger. "'Stop that noise this instant. Do you hear me?' "'Yes, ooh-ah-ah-ooh.' Ah, "'Then stop it.' "'Wants to she—' "'Toddy, I've got some candy in my trunk, but I won't give you a bit if you don't stop that infernal noise.' "'Well, I wants to she wheels go wound. Ah!' "'Toddy, dear, don't cry so. Here's some ladies coming in a carriage.' "'You wouldn't let them see you crying, would you? "'You shall see the wheels go round as soon as we get home.' A carriage containing a couple of ladies was rapidly approaching, as Toddy again raised his voice. "'Ah, wants to she wheels!' Madly I snatched my watch from my pocket, opened the case, and exposed the works to view. The other carriage was meeting ours, and I dropped my head to avoid meeting the glance of the unknown occupants— for my few moments of contact with my dreadful nephews had made me feel inexpressibly unneat. Suddenly the carriage with the ladies stopped. I heard my own name spoken, and, raising my head quickly, encountering Budge's bullet-head en route to the serious disarrangement of my hat, I looked into the other carriage. There, erect, fresh, 
neat, composed, bright-eyed, fair-faced, smiling, and observant. She would have been all this, even if the angel of the resurrection had just sounded his dreadful trump, sat Miss Alice Mayton, a lady who, for about a year, I had been adoring from afar. "'When did you arrive, Mr. Burton?' she asked. "'And how long have you been officiating as child's companion? "'You're certainly a happy-looking trio, so unconventional. "'I hate to see children all dressed up and stiff as little mannequins when they go out to ride. "'And you look as if you had been having such a good time with them.' "'I, I assure you, Miss Mayton,' said I, "'that my experience has been the exact reverse of a pleasant one. "'If King Herod were yet alive, "'I'd volunteer as an executioner "'and engage to deliver two interesting corpses "'at a moment's notice.' "'You dreadful wretch!' exclaimed the lady. "'Mother, let me make you acquainted with Mr. Burton, "'Helen Lawrence's brother. "'How is your sister, Mr. Burton?' "'I don't know,' I replied. "'She has gone with her husband "'on a fortnight's visit to Captain and Mrs. Wayne.' "'and I've been silly enough to promise to have an eye to the place while they're away.' "'Why, how delightful!' exclaimed Miss Mayton. "'Such horses! Such flowers! Such a cook!' "'And such children,' said I, glaring suggestively at the imps, "'and rescuing from Toddy a handkerchief, "'which he had extracted from my pocket and was waving to the breeze. "'Why, they're the best children in the world!' "'Helen told me so the first time I met her this season. "'Children will be children, you know. "'We had three little cousins with us last summer, "'and I'm sure they made me look years older than I really am.' "'How young you must be, then, Miss Mayton,' said I. "'I suppose I looked at her as if I meant what I said, "'for although she inclined her head and said, "'Oh, thank you,' "'she didn't seem to turn my compliment off "'in her usual invulnerable style.' Nothing happening in the course of conversation ever discomposed Alice Mayton for more than a hundred seconds, however, so she soon recovered her usual expression and self-command, as her next remark fully indicated. "'I believe you arranged the floral decorations at the St. Zephaniah's Fair last winter, Mr. Burton. "'Twas the most tasteful display of the season. I don't wish to give any hints, but at Mrs. Clarkson's, where we're boarding, "'There's not a flower in the whole garden. "'I break the Tenth Commandment dreadfully "'every time I pass Colonel Lawrence's garden. "'Good-bye, Mr. Burton.' "'Ah, thank you. I shall be delighted. Good-bye.' "'Of course you'll call,' said Miss Mayton, "'as her carriage started. "'It's dreadfully stupid here. "'No men except on Sundays.' "'I bowed assent.' In the contemplation of all the shy possibilities which my short chat with Miss Mayton had suggested, I had quite forgotten my dusty clothing, and the two living causes thereof. While in Miss Mayton's presence the imps had preserved perfect silence, but now their tongues were loosened. "'Uncle Harry,' said Budge, "'do you know how to make whistles?' can Howie,' murmured Toddy, "'does you love that lady?' "'No, Toddy, of course not.' "'Then you's batty man, and de Lord won't let you go to heaven if you don't love peoples.' "'Yes, Budge,' I answered hastily. "'I do know how to make whistles, and you shall have one.' "'Lord don't like mans what don't love peoples,' reiterated Toddy. "'All right, Toddy,' said I. "'I'll see if I can't please the Lord some way. "'Driver, whip up, won't you? 
I'm in a hurry to turn these youngsters over to the girl, and ask her to drop them into the bathtub. I found Helen had made every possible arrangement for my comfort. Her room commanded exquisite views of mountain slope and valley, and even the fact that the imp's bedroom adjoined mine gave me comfort, for I thought of the pleasure of contemplating them while they were asleep, and beyond the power of tormenting their deluded uncle. At the supper-table Budge and Toddy appeared cleanly clothed in their rightful faces. Budge seated himself at the table, Toddy pushed back his high-chair, climbed into it, and shouted, "'Put my legs under the table!' Rightfully construing this remark as a request to be moved to the table, I fulfilled his desire. The girl poured tea for me and milk for the children, and retired, and then I remembered, to my dismay, that Helen never had a servant in the dining-room, except upon grand occasions, her idea being that servants retail to their friends the cream of the private conversation of the family circle. In principle I agreed with her, but the penalty of the practical application— with these two little cormorants on my hands, was greater suffering than any I had ever been called upon to endure for principle's sake, but there was no help for it. I resignedly rapped on the table, bowed my head, said, "'From what we are about to receive, the Lord make us thankful,' and asked Budge whether he ate bread or biscuit. "'Why, we ain't asked no blessin' yet,' said he. "'Yes, I did, Budge,' said I. "'Didn't you hear me?' "'Do you mean what you said just now?' "'Yes.' "'Oh, I don't think that was no blessin' at all. "'Papa never says that kind of a blessin'.' "'What does Papa say, may I ask?' "'I inquired with becoming meekness. "'Why, Papa says, "'Our Father, we thank Thee for this food. "'Mercifully remember with us all the hungry and needy to-day, "'for Christ's sake. Amen. "'That's what he says.' "'It means the same thing, Budge.' "'I don't think it does, and Toddy didn't have no time to say his blessin'. "'I don't think the Lord'll like it if you do it that way.' "'Yes, he will, old boy. He knows what people mean.' "'Well, how can he tell what Toddy means if Toddy can't say anything?' "'Wants to say my blessin', whined Toddy. "'It was enough. My single encounter with Toddy had taught me to respect the young gentleman's force of character. "'So again I bowed my head,' and repeated what Budge had reported as Papa's blessin', Budge kindly prompting me where my memory failed. The moment I began, Toddy commenced to jabber rapidly and aloud, and the instant the Amen was pronounced, he raised his head and remarked with evident satisfaction, "'I shed my blessin' two times!' And Budge said gravely, "'Now I guess we are all right.' The supper was an exquisite one, but the appetites of those dreadful children effectually prevented my enjoying the repast. I hastily retired, called the girl, and instructed her to see that the children had enough to eat, and were put to bed immediately after. Then I lit a cigar and strolled into the garden. The roses were just in bloom, the air was full of the perfume of honeysuckles, the rhododendrons had not disappeared, while I saw promise of the early unfolding of many other pet flowers of mine. I confess that I took a careful survey of the garden to see how fine a bouquet I might make for Miss Mayton, and was so abundantly satisfied with the material before me that I longed to begin the work at once, but that it would seem too hasty for true gentility. 
so I paced the paths, my hands behind my back and my face well hidden by fragrant clouds of smoke, and went into wondering and reveries. I wondered if there was any sense in the language of flowers, of which I had occasionally seen mention made by silly writers. I wished I had learned it if it had any meaning. I wondered if Miss Mayton understood it. At any rate, I fancied I could arrange flowers to the taste of any lady whose face I had ever seen, and for Alice Mayton I would make something so superb that her face could not help lighting up when she beheld it. I imagined just how her bluish-gray eyes would brighten, her cheeks would redden, not with sentiment, not a bit of it, but with genuine pleasure, how her strong lips would part slightly and disclose sweet lines not displayed when she held her features well in hand. I, I, a clear-headed, driving, successful salesman of white goods, actually wished I might be divested of all nineteenth-century abilities and characteristics, and be one of those fairies that only silly girls and crazy poets think of, and might, unseen, behold the meeting of my flowers with this highly cultivated specimen of the only sort of flowers our cities produce. What flower did she most resemble? A lily? No, too— not exactly too bold, but too— too, well, I couldn't think of the word, but clearly it wasn't bold. A rose? Certainly not like those glorious but blazing remontants, nor yet like the shy, delicate, ethereal tea-roses with their tender suggestions of colour. Like this perfect gloire de Dijon, perhaps, strong, vigorous, self-asserting, among its more delicate sisterhood, yet shapely, perfect in outline and development, exquisite, enchanting in its never-fully-analyzed tints, yet compelling the admiration of every one, and recalling its admirers again and again by the unspoken appeal of its own perfection, its unvarying radiance. End of Part 1 Read by Kara Schallenberg on September 11, 2007, in Oceanside, California.